after I finished seminary, um, I, I stayed around in, in Durham, North Carolina. I was originally planning on going to be a missionary in Ukraine, in Lviv, Ukraine. But as happens with the United Methodist Church, some paperwork got delayed, and, and it didn't work out. Um, that was my first, my first true experience of, of bureaucracy, just getting in the way of mission. Um, but, so when I was there, I, I stayed in Durham and got a job as a nanny. So I had a master's degree and was nannying three days a week. And um, so a nice little boy, his, his mom was, his dad was a doctor and his mom was a PhD student. And I would take him to the Children's Museum. I would go to parks with him. People would be like, oh, what a cute kid. Is that your son? And I had to say, no. I don't want to say anything else. That was it. And people would just like slowly back up and pull their kids away. Um, I didn't know what I was going to do. I, I, I thought I went to seminary. I was ready. I didn't really feel settled yet to go back, to go into ministry. I thought I was felt called to go to mission work. Um, but then I was at a, I was at an event at a, at a church and a friend's spouse came up to me and we were talking and I was talking about like, I don't know what I'm doing with my life. And she was like, have you, have you, I have an idea for you. You need to call sister Anna Coop. She's this old nun in Denver. Um, and I was like, Okay, so I called, I called up Sister Anna, who was a 70-year-old nun um, in Denver, Colorado. We had an interview that was about 15 minutes. I said, well, why don't you come on to Denver? And so I drove to Denver, Colorado. That was my plan. Um, to the Denver Catholic Worker House. And a, the Catholic Worker Movement emerged out of the Great Depression. It's a lay, lay movement, um, not, a, not affiliated with the overall Roman Catholic hierarchy, but focused specifically on uh, the works of mercy and, and living those out. Um, Dorothy Day, who founded it, was a journalist and writer in New York, and, uh, um, and what she did, she, she was an atheist, was published um, in a lot of ways, and she became Catholic because all of the, the poorest immigrants were Catholic in New York, and so she said she, went, she felt God called her to be a part of that, to be a part of the teeming masses, and she called, um, she started this newspaper called The Catholic Worker, um, and was sold it for one cent an issue. And just wrote about um, about God's God's radical love. And so I, I moved here. I moved to Denver. I moved in on the day of Obama's acceptance speech in Denver. And so the interstate, if you've been to Denver, all the interstates were closed, which makes it really hard to get around. <laughs> so driving around, and I get there, and and it's it's just a house. It's just a house on a road. Um, there's a little light rail in front of it, and I started. Okay, it's like, how do I start? It's like, well, you cook twice a week, um, clean your room, <laughs> answer the phones. <laughs> that was it. That was my job. <laughs> room and board. There's nothing else. Um, and what, what we did at the house was it wasn't a nonprofit. There wasn't a kind of like stipulation of going in. It was if a room was open, we would let people come and stay there. If a room was not open, we would say, sorry, we don't have any rooms open. Would you like some more resources? And so I would start receiving phone calls. And at first, um, it was kind of weird. I'm not a great person with the phones. And so um, receiving phone calls was kind of awkward. For, it felt awkward for me. But then, um, so if you remember, so this was in the fall of 2008. Um, there was something going on in the country that led a lot of people to seek shelter. And especially Denver was a, a high area of that. There were a lot of houses under foreclosure. A lot of houses that had been built way too big um, and with these balloon loans that just people were out on the out on the streets in ways they had never been before. And so when I first got there, a lot of the people who were seeking rooms 
um, we're used to it. And you could kind of tell pretty quickly someone making a call who'd made a call to a shelter before. Um, and then it started after about a month. It was people who had never made that call before, who, were, who had never imagined themselves in this situation, who had never imagined themselves. And a lot of times, the rooms, we had two women's rooms and a family room, and those were the ones that were open most of the time. Um, and a lot of times, the biggest turnover was with, with families, and they had never imagined themselves in that situation. They were looking for a new home. They were looking for anything to be a part of. My friends, we are, we're starting a new series in this new year in the season of Epiphany called uh, New Year, New Home. <laughs> we're going to look at the ways on these texts of the season of Epiphany. And again, Epiphany is, ta-da, Jesus is here. That's, that's the Epiphany. Um, but how do we live that out? Like, what, is, what are the, what are the um, consequences of this reality of the world having this Epiphany that God is with us? As well as we're going to look at the realities of of, of homelessness in our area. Now, this church has had a wonderful ministry um, for a long, long time called the Work Corner Ministry that has been serving the needs of our brothers and sisters who are experiencing homeless downtown. And we are right now in this midst of a transition period in, in that ministry of trying to discern how, how we can best utilize the resources of Berkeley to serve our neighbors, especially in our immediate area. And there's a lot, a lot has been going on in Austin in the past year, really, um, about the visibility of homelessness, about the polit- politics of homelessness, and all of these ways. So I want to kind of connect these together. That's the, that's the point of this series, that they are connected, that we cannot disassociate how we see our neighbors on the streets from how we see the child in the manger. But first, as, as it always should be, we must begin with, with the scripture, with what God is speaking to us in the Bible this day. And I want to begin with this passage from, from Paul that, uh, that Jim read. From Ephesians chapter, chapter 3. And Paul writes, Earlier generations didn't know the hidden plan that God has now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets through the Spirit. This plan is that the Gentiles would be co-heirs and parts of the same body and that they would share with Jews in the promise of God and Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now this is a radical thing Paul is getting to and it gets to a question of who is deserving who is deserving of love? Who is deserving of grace? You see, for generations, many, many especially of, of Jews, of children of the covenant, saw themselves as you had to be a child of the covenant, a child of Abraham. You had to be a circumcised child of Abraham with a Jewish mother in order to receive the covenant of God, the covenant handed down from, from God to Abraham, handed down from God to Moses. That it was being a part of this family, of this community. You had to go through all of these steps of proselytization in order to be a part of this community, in order to receive the covenant, in order to be deserving of God's love and God's grace. You had to go through these hoops. And Paul, here in Ephesians 3, gets to the heart of the matter that there was something that God was planning from the beginning. And that all people would receive the promise of God in Jesus Christ. All people will receive the epiphany. Ta-da! That God is with us. It was for all people. This amazing thing. Paul goes on in verse 9. God sent me to reveal the secret plan that had been hidden since the beginning of time. God's grace 
God gave his grace to me, the least of all God's people, to preach the good news about the immeasurable riches of Christ to the Gentiles. Now, this may, we may read this sometimes and think about Paul as kind of like a false humility. Oh, oh, don't look at me. I'm the least of the apostles. Hmm. Um, but, <laughs> but I don't think that's really a proper way to read what's going on. I think, in fact, it's much more relatable, um, at least for me, to think, gosh, God, don't, don't send me. I'm not ready. I'm, I'm not prepared. I'm the least of the Christians. What about this other person I know? They're a much better Christian than me. They're much more faithful than me. Their heart is much better in this than me. I think that's, that's the same thing with, with evangelism and mission, is that some, oftentimes, for most of us, we have like, ah, I'm not ready for this. This is not for me. This is not, this is not I'm not gifted in this area. There's other people who are gifted. I'm not gifted in this area, or I just don't. You know, other people have the time. I don't have the time. And Paul gets to the heart of the matter in pointing out, God gave his grace to me. That what's important is not Paul's skill sets. His, his CV is not up for debate in this. It's God's grace offered. And this is the same thing in how we offer Jesus to other people. The point is not our CV, it's not our history, it's not how many um, Bible studies we've had or Sunday school classes or how many weeks we've been to church and those kind of things. None of those add up to the fact of whether or not Jesus is with us and offered to another person. God's grace is offered in that way. We all have a home. Paul isn't trying to change the world. That's the radically freeing aspect of grace. Paul doesn't have on his shoulders that I must do all the things. So often when we look at the world and we see problems of the world and we see things that tug at our heart, we think, oh my gosh, I must do something. Well, that's not what Paul is getting at. It's that God's grace, God gave his grace to me. And God is offering his grace to others. To all people. As Paul says earlier in, in Galatians, another letter, a letter earlier in his ministries, Galatians 3, 28, 8, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Amen. The separations we so often make that make our lives easier, that we can categorize people into these boxes and say, that is someone I can take seriously, that is someone I don't have to take seriously. I can ignore them, I can't ignore them. The grace of Jesus Christ cuts right through that. We are all one in Christ Jesus. We all have a home with Christ Jesus. Amen. So what are we supposed to do as Christians or as people thinking about it with those in our communities who do not have homes? Okay, we have some slides. Yay, they worked. Okay. Um, so one of the things that, one of the ways that the city and the county have um, data on homelessness in our area is what's called a point in time count. It is coming up soon. It is going to be on January 25th this year. It's usually kind of the third, usually the third Saturday um, in January. And there's a big group of volunteers, and they try and cover basically every known homeless camp in most of the neighborhoods in Austin and have a map and just put now um, in detail. 
That's all the people. So this is um, the, the point in time count over the last 10 years. Uh, and so right now, you can see there was a peak in 2011 and it kind of decreased for a while and then it upticked. And so right now, the, the top, the dark blue, is people who are unsheltered. And that number says 1,086, if you can't read it um, from your seat. And the sheltered is 1,169. So those are people who have been like, accounted um, usually by another person, so it's attestation. So this is much low. This is not. This is not how many homeless people experiencing homeless there are in the community. This is who has been counted. As well, January is kind of a low season, and there's a, also people who are more transitory. And in the summer months, it kind of rises a little bit. But that's um, that's just some, some of the data that the city has and is offering for us. The next slide. So 59% is um, male. 40% is female, so it's actually probably more evenly divided than a lot of us think. Next slide, please. Most are single-headed households, so most people are single, um, who are homeless in the area. You see that, that 14% are two- to three-person households with some kind of, of group together, and 5%, um, a pretty small number, are four-plus. And part of that is there's a lot more resources for homeless families, and so it's a lot easier to get in the door, in the, um, in the government door, the shelters, for that is better, there's funding that's easier. Um, it's just like you cut through a lot of red tape uh, with kids, but that's um, just the reality. Next slide. So this is the one that I found the most interesting. So adults uh, 45 to 64 are 46% of the population in Austin. Um, adults 25 to 44 are 46%. And then youth 18 to 24, 4%. Adults over 65 are 3%. What happens to you when you turn 65? You get, you get Medicare and Social Security. <laughs> Suddenly, it's, it's a lot easier to support yourself. Um, this just blew my mind when I saw this, this data for the first time about like, what is, what is the, the number one anti-homelessness program in, in the country? It's Social Security and Medicare um, and offering. And so there's, there's still, it doesn't get everybody, but there's a huge drop, right? That's amazing. Um, next slide. So this is, um, looks at homeless students. And there's two different definitions for homeless students um, that work with. The, the AISD uses what's called the McKinney-Vento definition, which is youth staying in shelters, unsheltered, um, or in hotels, motels, or, or doubled up in a house. And so it's a little broader definition, um, which is good. I mean, it's, we want a broader definition because it's resources are able to go in a broader area. You don't want to have a narrow definition just restricts resources. And then the HUD definition is um, youth in shelter or live in a place not meant for human habitation. Um, yeah. And so that is, so, um, six, so that's how the definition that the, the city has, has shared this data. Nine, almost 2,000 homeless students with the broader definition, and, but still 600, over 600 um, with, the, with the narrow definition. And 186, even in the broader definition, who are completely unaccompanied, um, who are living in this area. Okay, and the next slide. This is the last of the slides. Um, and so this one looks at like racial and ethnic disparities uh, in our community. And one of the starkest ones is 8% um, of Travis County is uh, black or African-American, but 34% of the homeless population is black. Um, and that, that's really, really stark disparity um, of going on. And so all of these contributing factors, there's a lot of contributing factors uh, with homelessness in our area. There's a lot of different types of homelessness. Um, you can go to the next slide and go on. Thank you. There's chronic homelessness, which is usually what, what we think of and what we see. It's um, people who, uh, individuals who are continuously homeless and can be staying on the streets or in emergency shelters. There's transitional homelessness. 
individuals who enter the system for a short stay before they transition into stable housing. And then there's episodic homelessness, individuals who frequently switch between housing and institutions and, and the streets and things like that. There are a lot of causes of homelessness. There's not just one simple cause. It'd be great if there was, but there are not. There's, there's affordable, lack of affordable housing in Travis County. If you, you know, anybody who's looked at a real estate sign or seen their property taxes realizes that affordable housing is not easy to come by. Um, I think, yeah, so if you would, rent in Austin has continued to increase in Travis County, you would have to work 109 hours a week at minimum wage to afford a one bedroom home. Yeah, so unemployment is a factor, poverty, lack of access to services, domestic violence is a major factor and homelessness. Oftentimes, yeah, oftentimes you can't, if someone, an abuser is a kind of a, a person that people like, and so people don't, can't, can't speak up in that, that situation or fleeing, and it's hard to find a space. But usually, for someone to stay in a chronic level of homelessness, there's coordinating factors. There's, there's a multiple things going on. It's not just you lost your job or you lost your home. There's also another issue, a mental health issue, a substance issue that's, that's a factor involved. There's all these things going on. It's not this kind of simple thing that we can just say, okay, we're going to vote and do this one thing and we're going to fix the problem. The city can't do that. People can't do that. We can't do that. Um, and that's, sometimes that can be hard for us to do. Usually we want to have, with a mission, we want to be like, okay, this is a concrete thing that I can do and it will make an effect and people's lives will change and they, they will feel better and I will feel better. Won't that be wonderful? Yay. Um, there's a wonderful program the Methodist Church started about 10 years ago called Imagine No Malaria, where we raised money to buy uh, mosquito nets and send, send them to places around the world in need. And it's, it's amazing. Mosquito nets are an amazing um, aid to the, um, prevention to malaria. And there's, the data is incredible of how malaria drops in an area that has received mosquito nets. And that was great. It's like, awesome. We can, we can offer our resources. It can turn into this thing. It can decrease malaria. People will live. Yay. And the, the problem is that doesn't, that doesn't work directly with these situations that have these coordinating factors um, that, keep, that keep care from people. It makes it, makes it hard to see. As well... Um, there's a lot of, a lot, sometimes Christians point to this passage from Paul where he says in 2 Thessalonians 3, those who don't, those who don't work shouldn't eat. And that's, that has come up a lot. That comes up a lot in politics. Like, you know, I don't know. Like people, people are on the street because they want to be there. That's not my issue. That's their issue. I'm just going to move on. Um, this is a really big abuse of Paul in a lot of ways. It's also very different from what Jesus' ministry you know, Jesus, when he feeds the 5,000, he doesn't, like, get... It's not a means-tested um, program. He's not, like, checking to make sure everybody's employed before they come up there. Um, or they have, like, adequate documentation. Um, he, he offers the food for them. When in Matthew 25, in the great passage of the Son of Man coming in his glory and dividing the sheep from the goats, and he says, you, um, you will be with me in paradise because when I was hungry, you gave me food. He doesn't say... Because when I was hungry, but I was deserving to be hungry because I did all the things I could, you gave me food. It was because I was hungry and you gave me food and offered it to him. It's, it's, it's a challenge. Who is deserving of God's love? 
Matthew, in Matthew 2, the passage for, the gospel passage for today, the gospel, the reading of Epiphany, of the wise, of the magi coming. Not wise men, they're, they're, they're magi. In Greek, it's magoi. It could be 30, it could be 3. It doesn't, it's hard to tell. It's just a plural. Um, that's another sermon. But <laughs> the magi are looking for a king. They're looking for a king to be born. And so you have two options to see. You see um, there's Herod in his throne. That's the first place they go. That's the obvious place they go. Herod, probably with a lot of gold gilted everywhere, like some tame tigers sitting there on the side, and, you know, like fire eaters, all the kind of, like, I don't know. I'm just making stuff up. But just imagine that kind of stuff. <laughs> or, there's, or there's a baby with, surrounded by animals. You know, and I always think about, like, cows and, and sheep. They don't really have, like, they're not potty trained. And so, <laughs> it's not a nice smelling place. <laughs> so you think of, like, who is deserving of God's love? The person who smells great or the person who doesn't smell great? How do we discern that? What, what we see revealed in Matthew is that that is not... For us to discern that God's love is for all. That we are not meant to sit back and be the judge of the deserving and the undeserving, but to offer God's love in this world. And it does, it makes it so much easier to feel like, gosh, I wish I, you know, I feel like I'm the judge. I'm the judge of my own family's finances, usually for my job. I discern on what what are we going to do for the budget for next year, all of these kind of discernments. But then God offers this radical position. This radical position that everyone is a child of God. And that you meet Jesus by offering to those who are hungry, to those who are sick and tired. It is, it is a challenge. Jesus never says, Feed the deserving hungry. He says, feed my sheep. So, so what are we supposed to do? So, so basically, um, Jesus and, and Paul kind of cut through all the nice, comfortable, means-tested social programs that we're used to um, and kind of leave us with our, like our jaw hanging open. Like, ah, oh, God, that, you know, that sounds really cool to be like radically loving. Um, but what, can, what does that look like? I want to like, see, like, what's a good model of it? I think first, we need to come back to what Paul was saying. Our job, our job is not to save the world. We can't handle that. We're not good enough. I'm not good enough. You're not good enough to save the world. I'm sorry. If you, don't, if you haven't heard that yet, you can't do everything. Our job is not to save the world. Our job is to be faithful to the God who is with us. The God revealed at this epiphany, ta-da, God is with us. We are not alone. Therefore, we should be able to do some things that are beyond our comfort zone. The first thing we can do, and we should do as a community, is pray. Is pray for our brothers and sisters experiencing homelessness. Is pray for our leaders who are making life difficult in this. Who are not helping, who are exacerbating a situation. 
as praying. When you come up to an intersection and you don't know what to do and you don't feel comfortable and you don't know all, all the issues, just you can't solve it. Begin by praying. Begin by saying, dear God, I do not know what I should do. Connect God to that moment. Make that be a moment not of avoidance, but of faithfulness. A second thing we can do is study. This, is, this, this period um, of January, I hope, is a period that all of us can take some time to learn more. I've, I've thrown some statistics at you. That's not all the statistics. That's not all the reality of people experiencing homelessness in our community. Over the next few weeks, I hope to, uh, on the Thursday buzz, I'm going to share an article or some information um, connected to the sermon, connected to the series, so that we can continue to, to learn more. That we don't want to stick our heads in the sand. Sticking your head in the sand is a lack of faithfulness, right? It's an assumption that God is not Lord, that Jesus is not with us. I, I don't want to hear about it. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to look people in the eye. I just want to move on and think about the fact that Texans won amazingly last night. <laughs> That's all, you know? Like, that is not an act of faithfulness. Um, you don't, you, but again, the burden is not to figure everything out to solve all of it, but to, not, but to be educated about it, to learn about it, discern about it. Another factor that I think for us as a church that we need to continue to do is make plans of how we can serve, how we can work together. The work corner, for years and years and years, um, it began actually amazingly, uh, I think in 86, it was working with the Catholic worker in Austin. And the, rad, the, radical, the radicalness of the Catholic worker getting us here. And we stayed here. And then a few years later, um, I think when Roy Ricker was at Berkeley, he got Sid Hall over at Trinity to start coming downtown. And they still have been doing it um, because of that, because of the witness of Berkeley. And so, so this amazing thing. But what can we do now with the reality of our area? And finally, our response can be to seek God's will in our life. To seek, what do I do differently now with this epiphany that God is with us? This epiphany that I can live differently. This epiphany that I don't have to save the world because I know who did. How now can we live? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.